And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, let me just be real with you for a minute here as we begin, because it was very hard for me to craft any introduction to this story, although I tried many alternatives. Having read various interpretations of this story, I'm not sure that anyone that I read understands its application rightly. It seems to me that this comedy of errors arises from well-meaning interpreters wanting to say more than Mark actually says and more than Jesus actually does. It results, I think, from a creeping anachronism where we try to shoehorn the past into the present in its cultural context, which don't fit, or at least where we can't prove that they fit. Because in the story we meet so many people, so many things that have no modern analog to the present. For example, we meet with tax collectors and publicans. What job is this? What do they do? And was it moral? And how did it affect its workers? We meet the enemy that is in confrontation with Jesus, the scribes, and the Pharisees. What is their logic when they bring accusation against Jesus? And do they have any basis for their allegations? We see a dining table that is set forth. Whose is it? And does it even matter? We hear Jesus using the category of the righteous. Who are they? And do they even exist? And all of these questions, I think, get in the way of the blatant message that Mark would communicate to his audience. I think to understand this story aright, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of Mark's Gentile Roman first century audience who the same scribes and Pharisees would despise like they despised those who were seated at Jesus' table. That this group to whom Mark writes sees themselves instead of ostracized by the scribes and Pharisees approached and called to repentance by Jesus. Mark's statement to his original audience is as simple as this, This Jesus came for you. When you boil it down, what is the story about? Why does Mark tell it? That is the point of the story. To people that this same group would say, why does Jesus associate with these Roman Gentiles? Mark is saying, Jesus responds by saying, I came for such as them. So in order to rightly preach this passage, I have chosen to avoid the temptation to attempt modern analogies. 
I'm not saying that there won't be application here to us and to our behavior, but I hope more uh, to avoid more faulty approximations and to stick with the language of Scripture. For often in Scripture you can uh, do such development consistent with the context of the whole Bible, but here uh, too often I feel that such development uh, leads to scriptural contradictions rather than clarity. For such a simple passage, it should sadden us how intricate we have made it, for it tells a very simple story. We proceed through the choosing of Levi to the condemning of guests and to the calling of sinners. Choosing Levi, condemning guests, and calling sinners. The story begins innocently enough. Remember, the story to its original audience would have sounded completely intelligible. But to us, nearly 2,000 years later, we struggle to grasp the nature of the culture that is involved. And here, Mark gives us the location and the vocation of this man, Levi. Mark swiftly shifts and reminds us of uh, the transitions of previous newsreaders who would say, and now this, as they go from one story to something completely unrelated. He shifts, the scene, he shifts scenes to a new story that seems to have no apparent contextual link to the previous passage in verse 13. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. It's a new day, a new scene, a new location, but the same message. Jesus continues teaching, teaching the people. Mark seems to focus the story of Jesus not so much on his healing ministry, but on his teaching ministry. And while the content of that teaching hasn't appeared in Mark other than the summary in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, where he says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel, Mark keeps including the teaching of Jesus in his stories. Jesus is going through uh, Galilee, the region, teaching and healing. And now Jesus returns to the seaside. While this is a new story, it still uh, is in that context of Jesus engaging with uh, conflict. But when Jesus returns to to the sea, when he returns to Galilee, the lake, it should not surprise us that in this location, he is doing something that he did last time he was in the same region. He's calling a disciple. He called the other four by the seaside as well. But this disciple does not follow from the boats and the fish, but from a very different profession. Mark almost makes it sound like happenstance that Jesus comes upon Levi in verse 4, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me, and he arose and followed him. While it sounds like happenstance, we know that it is anything but. Jesus went to this place on purpose to call his disciple to himself. So much has been written as to the identity of this disciple, for his name doesn't appear in the list of disciples named even here in Mark chapter 3. Instead, we find both Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus, the same uh, person, father, who is mentioned here in this verse. Matthew will use the same story, but will use his own name as the one called. And I see no reason not to see Levi and Matthew as the same person as so many in the New Testament and have and as so many in the New Testament have uh, two names attributed to them. You can think of Simon Peter. 
But here, Mark notes that Levi has a job. It's not sailing, it's not fishing. It is a job that he is working at when Jesus calls him. And what job is this? He is sitting at the receipt of custom. He is a tax collector, a telonist, a publican, as uh, the old uh, translators used to write it. An absolute precision about what this job was defies us due to the passage of time. We're not really sure what tax collectors did. At a minimum, we know that they were collecting money for the Roman Empire in some way connected to the transportation that went on in, on, the, on the Roman roads. It could have been poll taxes that were paid by everyone who went by, or it could be uh, something more akin to what we understand as customs duty as people were transporting goods that, uh, as they went by these various stations, they had to uh, pay a fee. We do know uh, that this profession included uh, rampant graft and extortion, or at least it was reputed to include these ills. The most popular reconstruction of this work envisions a contractor for the Roman government agreeing to deliver a set amount to the local magistrate for a specified area and a specified time. Someone, probably a local, would go to the Roman magistrate and said, I will give you X amount uh, for this region for this amount of time. So, uh, for instance, in the region of Galilee, for the next six months, I will pay you this much money in revenue. And the Roman government would give that person uh, the ability to go and collect the these kind of taxes. And that contractor, of course, wouldn't be doing it all, but would send people out to the various stations and, and collection points and uh, make these exactions from transporters. And there's a lot of confusion about this. Were the contractors paid by the empire, or did the empire expect them to make their money by charging more than they were giving uh, to the empire itself? And perhaps there's a sense of both. Certainly, the workers could pad their pockets out of sight of their bosses. To give a hypothetical, if the Roman government wanted 10 cents per person, the contractor would add another three and the worker would add another two. So you would pay 15 cents, 10 of which would go to the Roman Empire, three of which would go to the con one, one who had contracted with the Roman Empire, and two would go into the pocket of the guy you were actually paying the money to. Some have supposed that each worker might charge even various rates, depending on who went by. If they saw someone who could afford more, they would charge more. If they saw someone who could afford less, they would charge less. If these were customs officials, it might have everything to do with the way they valued your goods. A transporter of silk may pay more than a transporter of wheat. And with such ambiguity, you can see uh, the potential for injustice and the moral ambiguity of the situation. You can see how these people could be rightly or wrongly accused of graft. And whether or not the worker committed any injustice in this work, the religious elites of the day despised the contractor and everyone who worked for him. Usually, again, these would be ethnic Jews, those who were uh, indigenous to the area, who would contract with the Roman government. And so the religious leaders looked upon them as traitors, collaborators with the occupying force, corruptors of the pure faith and of the people. They may have even despised them above other Gentiles, for these are people who knew better, 
who knew better than to associate with the hated Romans or to choose their money over the people. It was said even some places that uh, the money that was exacted by tax collectors was considered to be unclean and not to be taken uh, by the temple. This is Levi. This is Levi as he sits there, probably not the uh, contractor himself, but a regular worker there at the tax collector, despised by his own people, shunned by the crowd that is probably hovering around Jesus. His hardened features probably bear the scorn of the people as they look askance at him. His heart probably hardened against the insults of his own race. We cannot but imagine that after Jesus' teaching tour of the region of Galilee, that Levi would not Levi would not have known who he was, who was causing this crowd to be processing along the seaside. He may have even taken opportunity, as Jesus was for a time, having to preach and minister outside of the cities, gone and listened to him. And there he sits, wondering why Jesus has chosen to go this way. This He sits there, wondering what Jesus has to do with him. And then Jesus looks at him and says two words, follow me. Only two words in the Greek as well. And Levi immediately leaves everything he has come to know. He leaves his lucrative trade, and he follows Jesus. Why Levi? Of all the people in the regions of Galilee, why does Jesus choose a tax collector? We can understand, possibly, his choice of Simon and Andrew and James and John. But Levi the tax collector. Honestly, of course, we could ask this of question of all God's people. Why does he choose any of us? After all, Matthew probably writes one of the most Jewish-focused Gospels, which is this weird irony that the one that uh, the Jewish people probably, or at least the religious leaders, despised the most was the one that wrote the Gospel for them, to tell them that their Messiah had come. And he cho- and God and Jesus chooses Levi. Allow me to make an observation that might help us understand and apply this event. As a result of this, because Jesus chooses Levi, Jesus begins a new ministry to a completely new group of people. A group of people that he might otherwise have never reached. For suddenly he is having conversations with people who probably would have felt intimidated to approach the new teacher in the synagogue. Or as he is surrounded by the scribes and Pharisees. The question arises in my mind, would we have even had the story of Zacchaeus if it had not been for the story of Levi? In a small church like this, We may meet with new people with a sense of ambivalence. We want to grow. We want to see new people. And it excites us when new people show up. But we may also worry about the new dynamic that each person will bring to the congregation. How will the atmosphere in the church change? 
Will this group of people stand up in front during the singing and start waving their hands around? Well, so what? Each person brings a new group with them. They bring new opportunities for us to proclaim the gospel to a new set of people, to be salt and light throughout the world. Yes, new people bring new challenges, and that is part of this story. But the challenges of difference are worth the opportunities to proclaim Christ, to teach him, and to grow people in their obedience to the faith. For the condemning guests that we meet demonstrate the challenges, which appear almost immediately. We see them in the way that Jesus faces the condemnation concerning the guests. And to understand this, we must consider who they were and why they were judged. The pronoun antecedent reference always gives commentators something to write about. Verse 15, And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. The commentators want to ask and argue about whose house his house was here in verse 15. And in case there is any doubt, Luke clarifies it that this was Levi's house in his parallel passage on uh, this story. So what happens is Levi invites all of his friends to gather at his house to hear the new teacher. A crowd that perhaps could never enter into the synagogue now is before Jesus. They probably had heard Jesus by his reputation and may have listened to some of his teaching outside the synagogue, but this would have been the first time they had a chance to sit down and talk to him and get their questions answered, to sit in dialogue with the teacher. Here in this house, at this place, uh, together with the disciples, are publicans and sinners, many publicans and sinners that Marx talks about. We understand uh, the character of the tax collector, the publicans. Levi's fellow workers join in this feast, and it would probably be, by Jewish societal standards, rather disreputable. And yet, this is probably a rather affluent community. After all, they are contractors of the Roman government in charge of collecting goods. The the story of Zacchaeus gives us an idea of how lucrative that business could be. And yet, while it was perhaps an affluent group, they were outsiders to the religious community. And to these are joined those who Mark calls sinners. And of course, an ambiguous term like that gives commentators all sorts of room to start talking and speculating. Some conclude that this includes those guilty and unrepentant of moral transgressions. One argument suggests that Mark's characterization must result from his known behavior of this group. Counter to this, we could understand that Mark is merely echoing the assumption and characterization of the scribes and Pharisees in the following verse. But in the end, we don't know exactly what kind of people these are, or why they received that moniker, and perhaps it's as it should be. Perhaps it is good for us to remain puzzled at this group, to see them, to see us in them. For the point of Mark's story isn't the nature of these people's sin, but of their association with Jesus. 
Verse 16, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? Three times in two verses, Mark uses the same phrase, of these people. Their association with Jesus causes the scribes and Pharisees all sorts of consternation. You might ask, why are the scribes and Pharisees together? Do you have to be a Pharisee to be a scribe? Well, not necessarily. A scribe was one who was an expert of the law. A Pharisee was one who uh, differed from the Sadducees as to the content of the Old Testament and the view of the afterlife. And while the, you didn't have to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee to be a scribe, you can see how one concerned with the law would gravitate toward Pharisaical orthodoxy rather than to the Sadducees with their power politics. These scribes, especially with their animus toward tax collectors, would side with the Pharisees over the Roman appeasing Sadducees. This group likely makes their argument to the disciples rather than to Jesus due to their absence. Notice that in verse 16. They don't go to Jesus with their problem. They go to his disciples. Now, likely, that's because they can't get to Jesus. He's surrounded by uh, these publicans and tax uh, and sinners, these tax collectors, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, wishing to remain pure, probably don't want to either go into the house or approach uh, such a committee. So they get the disciples' attention and start talking to them and accusing Jesus of doing something that they find rather uh, reprehensible. Here, Jesus is eating and drinking with publicans and sinners, and to us that doesn't sound like all that bad of a thing. But remember, uh, during the first century, and especially in the Jewish community, this is a very serious uh, view of attachment. We really have no modern analog to the social meaning attached to table fellowship as it was observed in first century Galilee. Interestingly, as we think about it, as time continues and dinner parties become less and less common, perhaps we will return to uh, the importance of table fellowship. But needless to say, Jesus' attendance at the supper indicated social acceptance of that community, an acceptance that the orthodox religious elites shunned. And yet God is the one who chooses to gather his people together. We have not too much matured past the stage of the Pharisees. If you look at your heart whenever someone new comes into this uh, building, oftentimes we don't see acceptance. We, accept, we hear our own heart saying, well, why are they here? But everyone is here as God has put, sent them to this church. It's very easy for us uh, to play the what-if game and to say that the reason we are the size or the reason that this church has its problems is because of, well, to be honest, each other. We devote, devolve ourselves into saying, why are we the way we are? And what we are really doing is blaming God for who he has put in this church. But God has made this church, warts and all, what he is. We are the publicans and sinners that Jesus chooses. We are the publicans and sinners that he 
has chosen to associate, and not only to associate with, but to make his family. This is our family. If a visitor came and were ask you why someone is the way they are, how would we respond? If someone came in and asked, you know, why is your church the way it is? It doesn't seem like it's supposed to be a bunch of sinners gathered together. But that's exactly what the church is supposed to be. And the very question, that, that very attitude that that question comes from is one that is reflective of the criticism of the scribes and Pharisees. So how would Jesus answer that question? Well, we see that in verse 17. He answers the accusation with a proverb and a declaration of his purpose. Jesus begins with a proverb, a truism that his accusers cannot refute. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a proverb, the first part. They that are whole do not need a physician, but those who are sick. We don't know its origin, but uh, commentators reflect that in uh, the first century, this was not an uncommon uh, proverb. Uh, we understand it. It's very understandable. The doctor often finds himself in the midst of the sick, not the healthy. The well person rarely seeks out the society of the doctor. I don't know about you, but in uh, my schedule, my yearly checkup usually takes the, the lowest priority level. When you're feeling well, you don't say, you know what, I need to go see the doctor. Even though you probably do, because you all need a wellness checkup once a year, but that's not usually at the top of your priority list. When you get sick, when you feel bad, that's when the priority of seeing the doctor shoots up. And that's what Jesus is saying. That the society of those that are around him are not those who are well. Jesus applies this to his mission in verse 17. Again, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why do you find it unusual that I associate with sinners? My message is one of repent. The people who need to hear the message of repentance are sinners. But again, we run into the fertile ground of speculation. Who are the righteous in verse 17? Some assume that Jesus is obliquely referring to the scribes of Pharisees. That Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, I didn't come for you guys, I came for these guys. But I think that doesn't work. That doesn't work primarily because Jesus has been talking to the scribes and Pharisees up to now. He hasn't been rejecting the scribes and Pharisees from his ministry. That has been his ministry up till now. And so I understand the righteous more in terms of the hypothetical righteous. Because neither Jesus nor the scribes nor the Pharisees would be ignorant about the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes where he writes, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. 
Or as Paul writes it, there is none righteous, no, not one. And therefore, in calling those associating with Jesus sinners, the scribes and Pharisees had condemned themselves. They had excluded themselves. They reduced the definition of sinners to those who commit transgressions that they don't commit, or at least that they don't see in their own lives. They have seen themselves as well and not in need of a physician. They had seen themselves as righteous and not in need of repentance. So, my friend, how do you see yourself? Listen to the words of Paul quoting from Ecclesiastes and the Psalms. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And I don't say this in order to judge you, because in judge, if I were to judge you, I'm judging myself. We are all in the same boat. None of us is righteous. No, not one. I am not righteous. And God requires righteousness to stand in his presence and experience his blessing. And there is nothing that we can do to earn that righteousness. But what we could not do, Jesus did for us. That is why God became man to offer us his righteousness a righteousness that he lived all his life, a sinless life, a righteousness that he obtained by his sacrifice on the cross for his people, a righteousness that he proved by rising again from the dead. The righteousness that you cannot earn, he offers unto you as a free gift to all who believe on him. You believe that what Jesus did, he did for you. Turn from your sin and follow Jesus. Christian, we are the sinners that Jesus chooses and loves and makes a part of his family. The message of this story is very simple to a Gentile Roman audience. You are the sinners that Jesus came to be with. You are the sinners that he brings unto you the message of repentance and salvation. You are the sinners that he loves with an everlasting love and died for. And so how ought we then to live? Shall we live like the Pharisees and pretend like we are righteous? It does not do for us to hide our scars and our warts, for people can sense hypocrisy and deception. They look for and want authentic, live, and real Christianity. Unfortunately, sometimes when we get real, they get more than they bargain for. They get more reality than they actually want. But this is the family of God. This is the family of God, not a group of perfect, righteous people, but a group of sinners. A group that has sins that we don't like talking about. 
a group probably that has passed that we would rather forget. Just like Levi and his tax collectors and the sinners that were meeting with Jesus. Most of all, let's, let us choose to admit who we are. Sinners only here by God's choice and grace. Let us choose to act like Jesus, accepting those who the world may find socially unacceptable. Jesus loves the unlovable. He loved us when there was nothing in us to love. Let us choose to crucify within us the attitude of the scribe and the Pharisee and live according to the heart of our Savior. Let's pray together. O Lord, forgive the Pharisee within. Help us to crucify the old man in his thoughts and attitudes and words and actions. Humble our proud and stubborn hearts. Make us thankful for all those you have chosen to add to the fellowship of believers. And we pray, O Lord, as it pleases you to add many of them to us. We beseech you for Jesus' sake. Amen.